passage this morning is from Malachi chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 6 through 12. So Malachi 3, we'll be starting in verse 6. I hope everyone has had a good week and I hope you're able to find rest this morning. Uh, I'm not going to lie, I'm a little bit nervous this morning. I'm usually nervous when I preach, Uh, but this morning especially because I get to talk about everybody's favorite topic, and that is money. So I'm a little glad that we have guest preachers coming the next two weeks after this sermon. Let's go to the word of the Lord. This is Malachi 3, starting in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the fields shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are the Lord of hosts. You have armies of angels and many saints beside your side. You are our Lord. Everything that we have, you have given us. So as we come to you this morning, I ask that you stir up our hearts in fear and awe of you in love, and in generosity. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a child, one of my favorite movies was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It's It's a great movie. It stars a kid whose family is impoverished. This young boy named Charlie, his four grandparents all share the same bed. At the time, there's this chocolatier who has this vast chocolatey empire, and he has a competition where if you find the right candy bar and it's wrapped in a golden ticket, you get to come into and tour his facility, something that has been covered in secrets. And Charlie is the last person to receive the golden ticket. He is the last one to get this opportunity. And it's not long after he finds this golden ticket that he is approached by this man, and this man's wearing a cloak and a hat, and he's a very 
shady-looking character, and he offers Charlie quite a bit if he could just steal one of Willy Wonka's everlasting gobstoppers. And then as the movies progress, he, he's able to tour the facility, and it's pretty amazing. At first, Willy Wonka seems friendly and affable, and then as the tour goes on, it gets a little scary, especially for a young boy. Uh, you don't know if Willy Wonka is uh, jolly and playful or... Uh, just crazy. One of the kids puffs up like a blueberry and has to be freshly squeezed. Charlie himself begins to float to the top and almost floats out of the building. Charlie goes through many trials in this and he does get to see the everlasting gobstopper and he is able to put it into his pocket. And then at the end of the tour... Charlie's the last one standing, which is not something you would expect out of a children's movie, to have a child be the last one standing. But he's the last one standing, he and his grandfather. And he has this opportunity, this man that he does not trust, this man that he fears, he could take it and sell it so that his family could come out of their impoverished estate. But instead, because it's not his and because... Charlie understands that. He takes it and he puts it on the counter next to Willy Wonka. And in a moment of... There's, a, there's this very intense moment of uncertainty. And you have admiration for this young man and all of a sudden Willy Wonka goes crazy again, this time with excitement and joy. You never know what type of crazy he's going to do. But this time, excitement and joy. And he just gives him the entire empire. Charlie is the next to receive this vast, chocolatey estate. See, Charlie understands what poverty is. He understands what it is to want. It is, he understands what it is to be in need. Yet he exhibits some amazing generosity. Even in that estate, he is very giving. And I would argue that we, as believers, should have a very similar understanding. If you know Jesus, if you understand the gospel, you understand how wretched of a sinner we are. How we have fallen short, how we need to repent and declare that yes, we need Jesus. We've seen the way our own sin has devastated people and relationships around us. We've seen other sin destroy things and burn bridges. This it is why we cry for help. And the, I would argue in, in the richness of the help and the overwhelming generosity and love and grace that Jesus pours out upon his people, we too should explode with generosity. That's our main point this morning. Because what we have is the Lord's, we should be generous with what he gives us. Because Christ is generous, we should be generous. So, let's dive into this passage. Uh, the Lord makes, starts this part on 
robbing from him by making this beautiful and stark contrast. And he does this basically to call out the Israelites to say, this is who you are. And he starts with this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So he starts out with the simple phrase, and the main thing is this, the Lord does not change. The Lord does not change. We often have the impression that God someone, somehow changes who He is from the Old Testament to the New, as if God is mean and cruel and jealous in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, He's just simply just kind and forgiving and merciful. But the Lord's not Batman. He's not one thing one moment and one thing the next. No, He's always been kind and merciful. Matter of fact, Jonah, at the end of the book of Jonah, Jonah gets angry because he's like, I knew you were slow to compassion or slow to anger and compassionate and graceful. Uh, and like he's mad at the character of God because God's so loving. Because Jonah knows who the Lord is. And if you read the words of Jesus, he straight up says, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Yes, Jesus is merciful and loving and just. But he's also king. He is judge. He is the ruler. And so God begins this passage reminding everybody, the Lord does not change. In other words, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is steady. He is the rock that we can cling to. He is, loves His people. He has given His word. He has stuck with them, even though, as we'll see, they have not stuck with Him. The prophets have given His word so that the people of Israel may know the Lord, and He's telling them again, He does not change. He is steady and faithful. And then he contrasts that with the Israelites' uh, fickle nature. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. So if the Lord is the steady father, the Israelites are the toddlers that will lie, cheat, and steal to simply to get what they want. Israel often fails in keeping the law of the Lord. And I could go throughout their history and just list a multitude of sins. Because anybody who reads the Old Testament usually comes out asking, how could they? The Lord just brought them out of Egypt. How could they build a golden calf? But I don't need to go through the list. I don't need to list their heroes and talk about how they failed. I don't, I don't need to talk them down a peg. Because I believe we could all relate in the room. If I asked you, how many times have you sinned this week? How many times have you fallen short of God's holiness? I don't even have to say this week. I could say this morning. And if you're a believer, I think you begin to understand that our own fickle nature, how we have fallen short of God's holiness. 
So yes, this passage begins out with a beautiful contrast. We have the rock of the Lord, and then the people are like a leaf that just kind of flutters and dances a plant in the wind. So Israel comes to the Lord, he comes to this rock, this leaf, asks the rock, how do we come to you? How, do, how shall we return? And later he'll ask, how have we robbed you? To be honest, it's, it's a bit silly. It reminds me of when I was young. Uh, when I was young, as my parents will happy, be happy to tell you, I had a tendency to lose my shoes. It didn't matter where we were, I would take them off. Did not like wearing shoes. The youth will tell, me that, tell you that I often teach without wearing my shoes. Uh, we would start a car trip. I would start the car trip with my shoes. And I would finish the car trip without my shoes. Not, and I would lose them along the way. It's not that they are off in the car. They're just gone. Probably some stop along the way. Don't know. Lost a lot of shoes that way. There is one particular instance that uh, my aunt tends to remind me of. I was asked to find my shoes one time something that I never wanted to do. And so, and in my effort to look for them, I simply walked around and just called for them. Like, shoes! They did not come out, and I could not find them. I don't know why. But there's no great desire there to find shoes. And I'm saying that these questions, how do we return to you, Lord? How do we rob from you? It has the same exact energy of me calling out for my shoes. They know how to return to the Lord. The Lord has told them how, time and time again. This is not a surprise question. They know. God sent prophet after prophet, bringing them the word. Yet no reform lasts. No revival stays more than one generation. And it can be the same with us. We can read Scripture, something plain as day in Scripture, and go, oh, I don't know. Often we, we don't hear simply because we refuse to listen. And then when the Lord calls us out, we're like, I didn't know. And so, God gets very specific here. Because they say, how, how do we return to you? And the Lord says, well, first of all, you're robbing from me. And Ezra's like, what? So let's look at this. 8 through 10. Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the tithe, tithe was 10% of the land. The tithe was meant for the Lord. As a matter of fact, the tithe was always collected for the Lord's purposes. 
It started with the Israelites coming out of Egypt. They were going to the promised land, a land that God said, this is for you. This land is amazing, and it is for you. And when the Israel sent in the scouts, they're like, this land's amazing. And only one's like, yes, it's amazing, we should go. The rest are like, it's also scary. But God said, this is for you. And as it is for you, I'm going to give you a set of laws so that everybody may know you are my people. The laws will distinguish you from the other nations, and they will know that you are mine. The laws were there to remind the people that they are set apart by the Lord. They are unlike any other around them. And part of this was the tithe. As Moses writes in Leviticus, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. It is for God's people. This tithe was 10% set apart for God's people, for the Lord to do his work, for the temple to serve God's kingdom and to serve his people. I'll get more into that in a minute. But I do want to address the other thing here. The Lord does say, test me on this. Try me out. Almost as if God is challenging them. Now usually when you come into Scripture, you don't want to test the Lord. It usually ends with a rebuke. But here it's a little bit different because at the heart, what God is asking His people to do is to act in faith. At the heart, the Lord is asking his people to act in faith. Now I get it. A tenth is a significant portion. It can be difficult to cultivate a field. There's a lot of hard work and there's not a lot of control over what happens. Farming's hard. Even even the best of farmers cannot control the weather. We don't know what is going to come, whether it's going to be a drought, or there could be too much rain. It's difficult. Yet they were to tithe and give 10%. But even in that difficulty, the Lord's saying, put your faith in me. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not, I, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This is, this is interesting. As is mentioned, it can be difficult. Challenging God is you know, on even ground there. Job's friends encouraged him to challenge the Lord, and eventually Job asked why, and the rebuke is very strong. And it gets worse. Ananias and Sapphira, they challenged the Lord by straight up lying to the apostles, and it goes far stronger than a rebuke. But this challenge is not so much one. This is not a, this is not a test of God's character. God knows He's faithful. He is the rock. He is steady. But it is something to still Lord's pe- the people. To calm them down and to rely and put their faith in the Lord. Now, as we look at this challenge, I do 
want to say this. I don't want to distort it, and I don't want anybody walking away with the distortion of what the Lord's saying here. This is not a divine plan for financial success. This is not a divine plan for our steps out of poverty. Because the Lord promises blessings. This is not a call. You're not going to manipulate the Lord by tithing and giving offerings. No, this is a promise of heavenly blessings, not, not earthly ones. So when God says, I'm going to bless, He's reminding, I am faithful. Bring your tithes, bring your offerings, stop robbing from me. And I will pour out my blessings. And you will see the goodness of being in the Lord and act in faith. And so we see it right here, plain as day. Malachi has issued a call to give. A call to be generous. For the Lord is generous. What The things that we have with us, the things that we have in our possessions, the things that we have now are all given to us by the Lord. That's why we still take up tithes and offerings. I know we don't pass the plate around anymore. Uh, Hopefully, we can continue to get better as a nation, and that will come again soon, because giving is certainly an element of worship. It is a part of honoring the Lord. But it is fair to ask, and I think it is a fair question to say, well, wait a second, you said that the Lord uses the giving for His own purposes. And to ask the question, how does the church use this for the Lord's purposes? So, just a few things. Firstly, when you give to the church, the church uses the money to pay the staff. Now, full cards on the table. I am one of the staff. Uh, I am a youth pastor, and uh, I am here, and I work here, but uh, I am one of the ones who does get paid. Thank you. Um, But it also pays for the others that work here. Um, It pays for Evan playing the piano so that we may worship well. It plays for Miss Rachel who loves our children so well. It helps pay for Cheryl who directs our children's ministry so that we can raise up our covenant children in the word. For Michelle who keeps everything together. And for Paul and Stuart. Men who are helping shepherd and lead us so that we may find rest and peace in the Lord, so that we may know our Savior better, that we may grow in our faith. Secondly, the church uses the money to pay for ministry, for the ministries that we do. Uh, earlier this summer, we had VBS, able to engage the community, meet new people, new children of those around us and to share the gospel with them so that they may know Jesus. We have two mission trips going this week. That's, that's spectacular. The timing's not great, but the fact that we can send two mission trips, that's, that is good. 
You've responded well to the call of, hey, we need help. The work that the deacons do around the church, the money helps pay. We have a Samaritan fund. A fund specifically designed for us to be able to go out and help those who are in need. The sojourners, the, the, the fatherless, and the widows to help those who have financial needs. Our giving goes there as well. And finally, I... I think this is an often overlooked point. The church uses the money to bring us together. And I think this is one of the most important uses. Now, I know it's been a while since we've had a fellowship meal, and I long for the day that we can come together and have a fellowship meal. It's one of our biggest missed blessings, just to be able to feast together once again. But as we all know, we can't have a fellowship meal without fried chicken, and the church makes sure that we have that fried chicken. The sound system, the the ability to now stream so those who are unable to come can still worship with God's people. We have now slides so you can figure out what in the world I'm trying to say. It maintains the building. So that we have a nice fellowship hall that people may gather together and spend time with one another, that life groups can come and meet, that the youth can come and uh, not rough it up at all, uh, that people can come together. It goes to missionaries. Missionaries who are here, missionaries who are abroad, that are in the busy process of bringing the sheep together. This is what the church does with your giving. And if you want to know more, you can talk to the front office and give Michelle a call and we can get you a budget. If you are a church member, we can get a budget. The point is this. The money that is so generously given, it is used to serve the Lord's people. That is its intent. That is our goal. That is the session's desire. It is the deacon's desire. It is, should be your desire. And if you find us going wayward in such things, it's okay to hold us accountable and say, why this? How are we using this to serve the Lord's people? I do not want to go astray. I do not want to be accused of robbing from God. We want accountability. This is why we have a congregational meeting at the end of the year so that the congregation itself can vote to approve the budget. This is all a good thing. And this is why we continue with tithes and offerings. And yes, I know there's an argument out there that tithes no longer apply to the church. That No, this is a Levitical law. It's not a church law. This is something that the Old Testament did. So let's take a moment. Let's look about how giving appears in the church and giving appears under Christ. 
Because I would argue this. Everything that Christ does magnifies the Lord. Everything that ancient Israel was, Christ makes greater. Our salvation is fuller. Where where the ancient Israelites simply looked ahead and they made sacrifices looking ahead to the atonement, to the sacrifice of the Messiah, we get to look back and see the fullness of what Christ has done for his people. It goes from a small nation in the Middle East to God's people goes from a small nation to the Middle East to people without borders, to every tongue and tribe. At last I heard the scripture has been translated into over 3,000 languages. The number may be higher. The message of love and mercy and grace, it is greater under Christ. There's eternal life promised. And we see that the heavenly kingdom is not simply just an... We see that the kingdom of God is not just an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one. And so with that in mind, I would say this. The generosity of the church should reflect the generosity of our Savior. The generosity of our church should reflect the generosity of our Savior. See, giving is expected of the church. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, writes this. On the first day of every week, Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And I cut it off too soon, but what Paul is saying is you're going to put aside money each week and then I can take it to Jerusalem to bring the money to help the church. He's telling the church, collect offerings. It's for the churches. He's... There's an expectation here. A willingness to give. That, that is an expectation. That is the assumption. This is what we are to do. We are to take up offerings. We are to take up giving. The church is supposed to be giving. We are supposed to outpour in love. That's what is expected of us. Not by the world, but by the Lord by the one who is faithful to his people. Secondly, I would say this. Give according to your convictions. If you're frustrated with the 10% tithe, give according to your convictions. Again, Paul writes to Corinth, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Notice, we are to give as each have decided in our own hearts. Now, maybe this is just the youth pastor in me, but I can hear the aha. See, our youth are very competitive, and we like to play games. And when we play games, I have to be very clear with the rules. Because often, 
something will happen. I was like, no, you can't do that. And they, they'll say, no, you didn't say we couldn't do it. I'm like, well, now I'm saying it. My favorite is the rule breaking that technically is within the rules, but not in the spirit of the game. And I'll call a student out and like, technically, I didn't break any rule. So when God says, give according to how the person decides in their own heart, it's easy to be like, well, I've consulted my heart and I've decided that my heart wants to give very little. This is not some Monopoly card, get out of jail free card. It's a rather, what is the call to is to reflect, to take a moment, see how generous the Lord is to you. See how much the Lord has loved you. And says, how much should you love the Lord? And yes, I understand giving money is not the only expression of love. But it is an element, it is a core part of worship. To refuse to give entirely is to neglect worshiping the Lord. So when you do reflect, when you go approach and say, and look at your heart, and again, I'm not trying to twist your arm behind your back. But I'm asking you, reflect on your love for God. Look and see how He has loved you. And this is help you determine how do you respond. Thirdly, I say this, give according to your own blessings. Paul also writes, For you know by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And shortly after that, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable to give according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Paul immediately tells him, remember, the Lord has impoverished himself that you may be blessed. We're not, remember, we're not a single income bracket church. We, we go across many different I guess tax brackets. I'm not the best with money myself. But Christ knows what it's like to be wanting. Christ knows what it's like to be hungry. Christ knows what is hard. Matter of fact, his ministry relied on the kindness and generosity of others. And so look at what God has given you. You look at what God has given you, saying, take care of this, steward this, protect what I've given you. And respond. Respond back to the Lord. Step out in the faith. Trust what the Lord is doing. The Lord is steady. He does not change. He loves his people. So I'll finish 
this sort of three just take home points. First is this. We need to repent from selfish behaviors. We like to cling to earthly things. I, I do this as well. I'm very much guilty of this. I cling to things that I enjoy. I say, this is mine. But we need to repent of that. If we cling to it, it will corrupt us. It will poison us. In giving, we will begin to convince ourselves, I can start giving if only I make just a few, uh, if only if my salary was just a wee bit higher, then I could start giving. If I made 10% more, I'd be happy to give 10%. That is not the way we are called to look at what the Lord has provided. It is not the way that we're called to look at the way he has given us our income and money to take care of and steward. No, we, we need to repent of such behaviors and we need to look to the generosity of the Lord. And as we look at the Lord's generosity, we need to find ways to be generous. This is something we should actively seek. Now I understand that some people in here may be struggling with money. Some people in here may be on hard times. So I know debt is a huge issue and you can feel like it is insurmountable. And if you're in this position, if you're struggling with finances, and if, if this is a problem, please come talk to the deacons. I, I talked with some of the deacons before and they said, please, yes, we can help people. We have deacons who are gifted and the ability to manage finances, to manage money, to help set budgets, to help people get to where they need to be. So if you're in need of help and you're looking for help, please come talk to the church. We have deacons who are ready and able to serve, to minister to you. Because we want to be in a place where we can give generously. We want to have a heart where we can give generously. We want to worship the Lord by giving generously. And lastly, final point. We need to rely on Christ to provide. We need to rely on Christ to revive. This paragraph ends with this. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. I, I know, stepping out in faith is hard. I remember uh, going into ministry, I was an intern for a college ministry, and I had to raise money in order to go to Pennsylvania. I had to call people that I never met, ask them for money. I had to raise 30, I think it was $30,000 a year. And the Lord was good. Many members here remember that. 
and you were very generous. I had uh, people generous from North Carolina, from family in Tennessee. But the Lord is faithful. And I was certainly blessed. And we are blessed that the church gave so generously that we can go on these missions trips. But giving money to the church and to missions and to ministry, that, that can be a bit unique in that there's, no, there's not necessarily something tangible in return. You're being asked to sacrifice what is tangible, what you have, what you know, to give it up for a ministry that you may never see the fruits of. You may never see what comes from it. You're being asked, trust that the Lord will use it for good. But as these last few verses say, the Lord will bless his people. He will give generously. He pours out. And we see the fulfillment of this in Christ. No, it's not just that the crops have grown, but Christ has given us a heavenly kingdom, a made us a holy people, a family. He has glorified us. So that when we enter eternal life, we will be clothed in glory. We will be made anew. Our, our bodies will not fail. They will not crumble. We will not get sick. And we will spend it worshiping. And we will be beautiful. Far better a reign than we could ever possibly be on earth. And as scriptures tell us, when we do, when we have that arraignment, we will still cast our crowns down before the Lord, for his glory is so much greater. For he is far more worthy of worship than any arraignment that we could possibly wear. We are the bride, and the bride does not look at her dress, but no, her eyes stay upon the groom. And so when we give, we are not lauding ourselves and thinking of the sacrifices we're made, but we are staring at the Lord and saying, Father, we love you. Christ, I love you. And I wish to serve you, to be generous as you are generous. So let us give generously. Because the Lord is far more generous than we could possibly imagine. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess I often stumble and I am often selfish. But I ask, Lord, that we, we as your people may be generous. That we are ready to give. I ask, Father, that we may step out in faith and trust in you. And Lord, I look forward to the day in which we may all worship together and see the fullness of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.